Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to Rethink, a podcast where we revisit past articles from the University of Malta's Think magazine. Looking at the pioneering work we have featured in the past, we catch up with the researchers to see how far they have come since they appeared in the magazine. My name is Chris, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Diva. Hello. In the studio with us today is Dr. Marie Bergoglio, an economist who specializes in discussing circular economy, development and overdevelopment. I'm very excited to have you on our podcast today, Marie. Welcome. Thank you for the invitation, Deva. Uh, welcome, Marie. Uh, could you quickly go over what your research is on and what you've been working on since the Think article was published? So basically, broadly speaking, I'm an economist, of course, and I work in the field of market failure and its solutions. So by market failure, we mean what happens if you leave the market or markets to work freely without intervention and what kind of negative side effects could that have on our quality of life on our health on others in fact mainly i'm interested in side effects that are related to environment and health and depletion of resources and how that affects our well-being there's plenty of markets that have negative side effects on the environment which is basically what we observe and live with chief among those markets in Malta and certainly not exclusively to Malta but they are very prevalent in Malta are the side effects of construction and of cars mm-hmm. and so i've been working to see how we can encourage different behavior not by merely soft options of policy like communication and education but by utilizing the whole policy toolkit that we have from fiscal to behavioral nudges to command and control and i've also been looking at how to change practices within businesses and not just with individuals So with the increased urbanization of Malta and sort of the psychological effect that people just want to do what's convenient is there kind of like a a balancing act between what's more convenient for people and I don't know greater quality of life for yes, the majority of people Absolutely and and in fact the trade off is the kind of friction that exists and that you try to resolve by regulation or by intervention of some sort so left to our own devices we would obviously because we're rational do what is most convenient and what makes us feel best as individuals it's really hard for a bunch of individuals and households and businesses to act in the common good mm-hmm. unless there is some kind of structure within which to act and that structure is normally governance of some sort so i don't you know entirely blame people for using in fact i don't blame people at all for using private vehicle because truth be said it's very hard to shift out of that mode of transport into the other modes let's say walking it's dangerous pavements are discontinuous they're hazardous let's say cycling bicycle lanes are discontinuous and hazardous the buses are difficult to use because they're stuck in traffic which is the side effect of so many cars ferries are not yet connected that you can you can commute safely of course you can get taxis and so forth but that's still vehicles on the road so you know i think that the solution whilst there will be people individuals who take it in their own hands to shift out of driving a car 
because it actually starts to become inconvenient. Mm-hmm. Most of the solutions that we need really are at the level of governance and where we invest and what kind of infrastructure we invest in. As we continue to invest in infrastructure that complements private vehicle use, we should basically expect that that is where people will continue to go. That's really interesting because there's been... I don't know, in the forefront of a lot of people's minds, it's been a lot of sort of looking at sustainability and recycling. It's been down on the individual level and it's been kind of pushed down to everyone needs to do their little bit for recycling or improving quality of life. Do you think it needs to be brought up perhaps another couple of levels to businesses, to governance? Indeed. Uh, Of course, nothing will happen if people don't eventually do their part. But I think it is an unfair burden to expect, and it's also an unrealistic expectations, expectation to believe that this will just happen by individual action. Individual action can matter a lot when that action is lobbying government to take action. Individual action matters a lot when that individual heads a large corporation. Individual can matter a lot in families too, when many individuals are doing it. But I think we really need to understand that the one of the biggest sources of power that we have in our hands as individuals participating in a democracy is to influence our politicians into making the right kind of decisions, both in terms of the legal, fiscal, and mostly investment where they invest our money. But why do you think this hasn't been taken up by any of the parties? They seem like they they want to be at odds with each other on just about every issue. But when it comes to overdevelopment, they seem to be fully aligned and non-critical towards each other. Is it because of lobbying? Is it because of the way campaign financing tends to run in Malta or... What are the reasons for this consensus politically? I mean, one one uh, insight that could be useful to, to complement yours is the prospect that uh, political cycles are five years or less. In fact, five years is the maximum. And most decisions are taken midway and then they have to bear fruit very shortly after. And so there tends to be, let's say, a preference for investments that yield quick wins and uh, it's very hard to have that kind of foresight to invest in something that's really long term and that probably some other legislature will gain the kudos for and I think that in this regard entities like the European Union have a lot to offer to help us to make investment decisions that render fruit in the long term in a way that is more sustainable. Actually, the EU funds a lot of transport projects. So I think that when I say we need to lobby and talk to our politicians and express our preferences, I'm not sticking to just the local politicians. European politicians are our politicians too. So let's hear more about uh, the situation that uh, Malta has got itself into. The article featuring Maria's research appeared in issue 27 in March 2019 of Think Magazine. The case for a sparsely carried island. 
As the call for cleaner, more sustainable future becomes louder, what impacts do our individual choices make? Nika Levikov writes, The alarm blares for the millionth time. You drag yourself into the waking world. You need a shower. You need coffee. Cereal? A wary glance at the clock, and suddenly there's no time for breakfast. Let alone a pack lunch. I'll grab a pastitz and go to the shops later. You think as you jump into your car. Actually, it'll have to be the supermarket. The greengrocers is too far, and you're behind on your latest big report. The morning rush is a bane shared by most in contemporary society. Multiply that routine by a few hundred thousands, and the impact adds up fast. Our hectic lifestyle is just one cog in a huge wheel leading to increased waste, pollution, and poor health. What's more, behavioural economist Dr. Marie Brigolio from the University of Malta asserts that the main environmental concern for citizens in Malta today pertains to declining quality of health in urban areas. It can be difficult to imagine certain forms of consumption, especially basic needs like food and water, as detrimental. But Malta's State of the Environment report by the Environment and Resources Authority, the ERA, ranks agriculture, electricity-guzzling osmosis plants high among environmental pressures on the Maltese islands. Transport is another indispensable need. Car ownership is a big culprit, but the situation is more complicated, according to economist Dr Jonathan Spiteri, also of the University of Malta. Older cars emit more harmful pollutants and are often in need of repair. Transporting goods and services around the island is key for the Maltese economy but this contributes to a lot more than just gross domestic product. The environmental stresses caused by cars and lorries are clear. Malta faces maddening traffic and the degradation of green areas all over the island. Met by subsequent demands for wider roads and more parking, there are also more insidious implications for citizens, since polluting vehicles lead to higher respiratory illnesses. Malta has a very high asthma rate. Green technologies are booming, both Iceland and Tokelau have hit 100% renewable energy production, while China invests hundreds of billions in renewable energy. But what has been happening locally? It's not all doom and gloom, Spiteri notes. Since 2008, the proportion of total energy generated from renewables has increased from 0.2% to 7.2% in 2017. There has also been an increase in the purchase of electric and hybrid vehicles. In 2015, 246 electric cars and approximately 439 hybrid vehicles were registered. Nonetheless, regular cars are still omnipresent. Between 2012 and 2015, the number of vehicles on the island grew from 293,498 to 346,918. From one vehicle per 1.4 people to one vehicle per 1.24 people. These numbers are staggering, considering that Malta is the most densely populated country in the EU. In 2011, Malta was home to 1,325 people per square kilometre, more than tenfold of the EU average of just 116.9 people. Looking at the ERA's report, Malta's population is expected to exceed half a million by 2060. Will the increase in cars be proportional? Malta needs innovative public transport systems to reduce the addiction to cars. Speaking about local climate mitigation, meteorologist Dr. Charles Galdez of the University of Malta believes that addressing gas emissions from cars is a priority. However, he also mentions that according to the ERA's report, greenhouse gas emissions decreased 31% from 2012 to 2015. 
Other positive steps forward include Malta's National Strategy for Policy and Abatement Measures and the Climate Adaptation Strategy, enacted in 2012, which are addressing vulnerable areas, including coastal zones and freshwater resources. But Galdez believes we can do more. The emphasis on further investment in traditional modes of transport can be problematic, he says. This also applies for maritime and aviation transport. The urban heat island effect is another issue. Highly built-up areas with few green spaces and large numbers of people see heat getting trapped, raising temperatures fast. Galdez notes the danger this can pose for young children and the elderly, especially during the summer. Towns and cities can be up to six degrees hotter than rural areas due to heat being absorbed by roads and buildings during the day and emitting it into the atmosphere at night. Green roofs, as proposed by the team behind the LifeMed Green Roof Project, can be a solution, adding much-needed green space. Alongside political and technological solutions to the environmental problems we're facing as a modern society, we must also tackle how institutions communicate about climate change. We need to speak directly to the community, said Galdez. Researchers need to work with citizens to better our natural world. They play a crucial role in providing their own visions and ideas. According to Bregulio, contrary to popular beliefs, repeatedly, our surveys show a willingness by Maltese people to behave pro-environmentally where infrastructure, institutions and interventions enable it. And this is what the ERA is doing now, as they work on a national strategy for the environment, a forward-looking plan for 2020 to 2050. They're inviting citizens to contribute in shaping Malta's future. Perhaps there is no better time to make our voices heard, to support an environment that provides for a better quality of life and contributes to a national strategy that seeks to nourish the lives of all individuals. After all, don't we deserve a breath of fresh air? Welcome back. And now that we've discussed and heard about uh, the inconveniences caused by this overdevelopment and this focus on private car and uh, overbuilding, the question is, who is this for? Who does it serve? Well, I think let's start from all the positive stuff that indirectly it serves all of us because it does generate economic growth which somehow filters and allows us, if not directly, to enjoy its fruits indirectly, to have certain services that uh, that the state caters for. However, it benefits some people more than it benefits others, directly those that uh, earn profit from the process and those that can afford to live in these new edifices that are built. And sadly, it also impacts negatively some people more than others, others, and namely those that cannot afford and that actually are left to scoop up with their own lungs and their own properties the side effects of pollution that these activities leave. So there is a redistributive effect when you leave the economy to run alone that also forms part of the portfolio of what governance is about, which is to ensure that people don't fall out of the net of what is a decent living. And by decent living, we don't just mean minimum wage, which is fairly indecent, by the way, but also we mean the ability to walk, the ability to breathe. I mean, these are 
fundamental aspects of our quality of life that uh, sadly afflict the very people who are also the weakest in terms of income. Because what happens then is that you can't really afford to live in a place where there is, you know, scenic valley views and fresh air. So you end up with your minimum wage living in the most polluted areas, unable to afford the electricity bills that come with air conditioning. So you have to breathe that air, working in jobs which are also polluted and somehow life-threatening, if not instantly, but certainly in the long term. So it's kind of like there's a almost a snowballing of situations beyond being financially poor that also implies that you are suffering a negative quality of life. Do you think we've become complacent in this slow development of an issue which nobody really saw coming right at the beginning, but now we've found ourselves in a position where mm, this is just what it is now? Is this just what we have to deal with every day? Well, first of all, I wouldn't say it's slow. I think it's pretty rapid. <laughs> I would have, I mean, I would have concurred with that description, let's say, 80s, 90s, perhaps you know, some years ago, but suddenly it's really boomed really fast. I mean, most people will tell you that they hardly recognize places because they're changing so rapidly. I think that there is some truth to be said that, you know, you get used to levels of discomfort when they're cumulative. If what we see around us had happened because a bomb dropped on Malta, it would, we would have described that as, you know, unbearable and we must do something to address this. If the number of deaths on the road were to be called an epidemic rather than, you know, fatal car accidents, we would be up in arms. So there is a tendency for us to become complacent because it's cumulative. And there is also another aspect, I think, which is that you sort of lose the belief that you can be effective in making change. And so you don't really want to invest so much effort in thinking or worrying about it, because ultimately, all that thought is only going to take you down the road of, well, now what? What do I do? What are the options that I as an individual face? People start to spiral downwards rather than aspiring to getting themselves out of a situation. Correct. So if I may, so in my case, I kind of grapple to whatever sort of straws I can to lift myself out of that spiral. And the first is, what can I do that actually makes me feel better and is also not contributing to the problem? And so cycling was one of the things that I chose to do. It really makes me feel happy to cycle and to find new routes and so forth. And it contributes to the solution. And another thing that I feel I can do is to advocate and to speak. And that also doesn't make me feel unhappy. It doesn't make me feel as happy as cycling, but, you know, at least it doesn't make me feel unhappy. And I feel it's contributive. And I'm sure that if you examine, if people examine what they can do, that is a sweet spot, it, not necessarily a sacrifice, you know, but something they can do that elevates the situation, it starts to build a better efficacy belief. And when we think about uh, markets, since that's your research focus, they are kind of the opposite of governments in the sense that uh, we can put a face on an institution or, or a function that we know who the prime minister is. 
and uh, we can personalize our demands uh, as uh, citizens, whereas markets are construed as impersonal, and this helps uh, creating this helplessness or, or this... Uh, uh, yeah. loss that people feel when they try to challenge the markets. So That's a very interesting observation. So in a way, you know, if you're talking about your spending power as a consumer, sure, of course you have that. But, you know, it's diffused among a lot of businesses and there's a lot of other consumers and who knows when that will eventually be felt. Whereas your voting power and your speaking power, I mean, you're as powerful as the next person. And, you know, you don't actually need such a cumulative effect because, as you say, the target is very easily identifiable. So do you think uh, this is a part of the process in which powerful interests uh, make us complicit, as uh, Chris mentioned? Because, uh, after all, the heads of these companies are also persons and individuals in a way, but they're unelected and they're not accountable at all. And Well, they're accountable to their shareholders, they're accountable to staff, they're accountable, you know, to whoever lent them the money. So, and generally speaking, I don't think that corporations are out to be evil, you know, I mean, of course, there are exceptions. And of course, we know about these from movies, especially because they make really good subject matter. But uh, I think that, uh, you know, if a lot of our research these two years has also been trying to identify what drives corporations to do, to take less resources, to make less impact, to be more social. And one thing, there is an economic case for some of them. So in some cases, it's actually profitable to go for secondhand textile, for example, rather than go to very volatile markets of virgin materials. In some instances, they're born to produce something that's green. So we're increasingly seeing these businesses whose entire ethos product is something green. In some instances, it's the entrepreneur who feels a dissonance between what his or her values are and how then that transmits to the company culture. But I think in terms of what causes businesses to change, and this is what emerged from our research too, is essentially policy. I mean, you cannot expect companies to un undertake costly environmental cleanups or changes in their production process when it's perfectly legal, indeed rewarded, often even assisted to be a polluter. So it really has to be also at the policy level that we bite the bullet and say, right, we regulate now. We can't always have this positive sort of growth and always be making more and more money. We need to kind of maybe change our idea about what we want going forward, perhaps. Yeah, and where we is not just the individuals, but mm. the policymakers, really. And when we think about a typical village feast, uh, we can see this example of... Uh, privatizing profits and externalizing losses where a lot of rubbish accumulates on the squares and it's up to the government to clean up and collect and their effectiveness and efficiency will be judged depending on how quickly they manage to hide <laughs> all this waste and put them into a landfill. But businesses are not judged for failing to plan their life cycle of their products. No, but they should be. <laughs> it's a bit of a fairy tale. I think it's not an I mean, it's not unrealistic for those businesses that were intended or that set up shop to do this, that they would consider that. 
But we really need to speed things up and we just cannot wait until, you know, all the business turn circular or turn green of their own volition because their entrepreneur happens to be feeling guilty that they don't do it. I mean, we really need to step it up and say, this is almost, what, what did we do with smoking when we realized that smoking was bad for people? We regulated. We banned it from common areas. We banned it for young people. We even stopped advertising, for heaven's sake. And now we've realized that there's a lot of pollution which is really harming us, in some cases irreversibly, and we're still, you know, treading on eggshells of trying to encourage people to do it of their own volition at home or in business. I mean, I think it's time we, we up the ante a little bit. What do you think is our next step forward for dealing with all the cars on the roads and the pollutants they give out? So do we need to encourage people to buy new cars, but there's the issue of the production, the global impact of buying new cars, or do we need more public transport? Do we need to encourage more people to be cycling? What do you think? So I have a very simple and quite resolute answer to this. We need to take cars off the road. I don't uh, see any problem with people owning as many cars as they want to own, but keep them inside because the road is a public space that needs to be shared and that we now need to give way to the other forms of transport. And until we remove cars circulating on the road, there is no space for public transport, cycling, walking and other means of, of movement, of moving people, because ultimately that's what we're doing. We're allowing people to move and we're only giving space or mostly giving space for people to move if they're protected inside a metal box. It doesn't really matter whether that metal box is driven by solar power or the I mean of course it matters for CO2 emissions but it's replacing our stock with electric vehicles will not solve the congestion problem. So we need sort of like congestion zones like in the UK or that kind of policy regulation really of like only certain cars on certain days. Or we need to simply make circulation a little bit more restricted in whatever we shape or form that we can learn from, because there are now so many examples of things that have worked that really is sticking to just giving more space for people in metal boxes strikes me as being a little bit antiquated. Let's hope that policymakers are listening. Thank you. That was all from Rethink for today. Tell us what you think about the episode by commenting on ThinkUM on Facebook, ThinkUni on Instagram, or ThinkUniMalta on Twitter. Rethink is produced by Think Magazine in collaboration with Campus FM. If you are listening to us from outside of Malta, you can find Think on isuu.com forward slash ThinkUni. Our theme music is by Princess Wonderful. You can find the link to her profile in the show notes. Your hosts, Daivara Pachkaite and Chris Stiles. Our sound technician is Carmo Grek. Find us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and bye for now.